I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Anne Murico is a co-founding partner at Floodgate, a seed-stage venture capital firm located in Palo Alto, California. A repeat member of the Forbes Midas list and the New York Times Top 20 Venture Capitalists, Anne was one of the first investors in companies such as Lyft, Refinery29, and she's been an early backer of many other important companies, including Xamarin and Thinkful. Anne is one of only a handful of non-scientists I've talked with on Best Known Method, but her story and her insights are as relevant to science and medicine as any conversation I've had with a scientist or doctor. And not just because she was almost a doctor and a lawyer herself. Anne's personal story and her journey are unusual. The choices she made along the way were bold and unconventional. She took risk. And most important, she had remarkable insights into her own strengths and weaknesses, if actually there are any. And maybe more importantly, she had insights into what she enjoyed, what muscles she liked to exercise. A quick word from our sponsor, Key Eats. I mentioned back on our episode with Emily Oster that we've had our hands full with some really exciting new developments for the company. One of them is that we're now called Key Eats and no longer Keto. I can also share with you that we're launching our own line of food. We're starting with our own low-carbohydrate bars and are very excited about how they turned out. First off, they taste great. Even my kids, who hate any low-carb food, simply love them. I've quite literally had to hide them in my house so they won't disappear. But we didn't just set out to make a great-tasting bar. We wanted to make something that would truly support people on their low-carb nutrition program, and especially the Key Eats program. And that's what these bars really do. The macronutrients are phenomenal. There are just 3 grams of net carbs, 12 grams of protein, and 18 grams of fat per serving with just 1 gram of saturated fat. They are 100% plant-based, and the ingredients are so clean and simple. The vanilla almond is my favorite, and it's made of just almonds, pea protein, chicory root fiber, and flaxseed. They are sweetened with my favorite natural non-sugar sweetener, allulose syrup. In addition to vanilla almond, there is cookie dough and fudge brownie. It's really amazing to combine such great taste with incredible nutrition. We're so confident that you'll like them, we'll send you a sample pack of three bars for free, including free shipping. So just go to keyeats.com slash BKM. So that's K-E-Y-E-A-T-S dot com slash BKM for details on how to get these bars for free with free shipping. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Ann Murico. I was born in Santa Monica yeah, and uh, grew up there until I was two years old. And then my dad got a job at GM, moved to Michigan. He decided he didn't like working for companies, would rather work in academia slash for the government. And so got a job at NASA and moved to California when I was four years old. So he got a job at Moffitt. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. He's still there? He retired uh, four years ago. So your dad is a rocket scientist? He is a rocket scientist. And uh, what about your mom? My mom was a math teacher back in Japan. And then when she came out to the United States to get married to my dad, she became a math teacher to me and my brother. That's scary. My mom was a music teacher. <laughs> um, I remember summer vacations were like, it's great. We're going to have Miura school now. And my brother and I were like, Miura school is way worse than regular school. So I'm curious about what you think about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I know you went on to study math, but so do you think it obviously didn't completely destroy your interest? No, I mean, it was it was good in the sense that my mom just had high expectations. So she was never saying, oh, you know, girls don't like math. She... She just was like, well, you're Mira. You're going to be amazing at math. And if you're not, you're not coming home. So. And did you end up like way ahead of all your classmates and like taking college classes when you were in seventh grade? I took uh, AB calculus, I guess, in freshman year. 
Of high school. In high school. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was a little bit advanced. And you, you liked it? I, I did. I really liked it. I felt like I was really good at it. I got it. So it was something that sort of I carried with me. And you see, so you have one brother. I do. And was he into math? He was. And he was just sort of a, he was one of these naturally gifted students uh, where he didn't have to study as hard. So I, I'm a grinder. I would study and I would, I would do well. But he was one of these kids. He never studied for the SATs and just got a spectacular score. Uh, so he was a different kind of student, but he was very, very smart and gifted. Now, when you were a kid growing up, was math it for fun or was there anything else that you guys did? I know we're an Asian family. We did <laughs> piano and violin, obviously. Come on, really? Nothing? Well, we, I mean, so we did, my mom really loved nature. So I was, I spent up until from the time I was four to the time I was in fifth grade, we lived actually in Fremont, California. So across the bay from here. And back then it just wasn't developed very much. And so you had all of these hills that you could go hiking in. And so my mom would just take us up to these creeks. And in the summer, I remember spending half my time catching tadpoles and bugs and running around in the mountains. And then half the time in Mira school doing math and piano. Okay. So you're a parent now. Yeah. How old are your kids? I have a 12-year-old girl, a 10- and 7-year-old boys. And do they go to Mura school? They do Mura Co. school now. Really? Yeah. Is it your mom? Uh, no, actually, it's me. But I just leave homework for them to do over the day. And then I, I actually run a computer science camp out of my house. And you started to do that after you had kids, or were you doing it before? I, it was after I had kids and my daughter went to some coding camp, which was really expensive. And sh I felt like she learned nothing. And so I said, well, I could do that. You're like hitting every one of the stereotypes. I'm, I'm a very stereotypical Asian mother. <laughs> That's awesome. My kids play piano too. Just piano. Yeah. Well, my son wants to play guitar and I think I'm going to let him do that. That's not very Asian, but. I did that with my daughter. I let her switch from piano to guitar recently. And and you know what? It was the best thing that I did. She went from like, I had to wrestle her to the piano every day to, we have to take the guitar. We have, we reenacted the other day that my oldest daughter is almost 16. I showed her the scene where John Belushi smashed the guitar over um, the, the guy's head in Animal House. Cause she was like, Ruthie, I'm going to break your guitar. Yeah. And no, I found my son, my seven-year-old son strumming a ukulele in his bed in the morning. And I was like, well, he doesn't do that with the piano. So maybe we should switch to the guitar. So you end up go growing up here in Palo Alto, went to high school here. Mm -hmm. Pali High. You went to Pali High, which was a good environment. I mean, it was challenging academically or not really? It was a school back then where I think it's probably the makeup is a little bit different now, but probably half the students, their parents had some association with Stanford University. Uh, you had some people involved in technology, but you know, it was a real mishmash of different types of people, but very academically driven. And so there was a nice tie into Stanford universities, literally across the street. We had a lot of different types of students, different interests. And so today it's still a really good high school. I think even back then it was a really excellent high school. So what did you think you wanted to be when you were in high school? I think that changed a lot over time. I had this older brother who knew from the time he was, gosh, like ever since I could remember, he wanted to be involved with either flying planes or fast cars. And guess what he does now? He works with F1 car racing chassis design. Right? He just never veered from the passion or what he wanted to do. And I started out thinking I wanted to be a farmer when I was four, then I wanted to be a doctor, then I thought I didn't really like the side of blood, and so then maybe I'll be a scientist. I went back to wanting to be a doctor. I really kind of wandered a lot. And so the vision of what do I become in the future was never really clear to me. 
So your mom, who was putting you in through Mira school, teaching you math, she was okay with that? She didn't mind that you were sort of finding your path? No, I don't think she ever, she, she was not one of these parents who was like, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. You have a lot of Asian parents that are like that. But my parents were not really like that. They just wanted us to be curious and academically very curious. And so then you went off to college. You, did you go to Yale? Yes. And what did you stay, study at Yale? I studied electrical engineering. <laughs> How many women were in your program? There was maybe one other female in my program at the time. And um, so you just told me not two minutes ago that you thought about being a farmer and a doctor. And what was it that lit your fire over electrical engineering? Uh, so I, when I originally went, I was thinking of doing, I think it was called molecular biology and biophysics, mb and uh, I was interested in going to med school at the time, and I thought that would be a really good, appropriate major. I really loved math, as I mentioned, and the issue was with the mb and major, I'd already fulfilled all the math requirements. And so I felt like it wasn't a real match for me and my interests. And so I went out looking for something more mathematical. And I had heard of this professor who was talking a lot about nanorobotics. And his vision was, you know, sometime in the future, you're going to have these micro robots that you'll literally inject to someone. And instead of having stents, you'll, they'll go in, they'll clean your vascular system, things like that. And I thought that was really, really cool. And so as a result of that, I said, well, maybe electrical engineering is the direction I should go in. So what year was that? That was 1994. Okay. So it was science fiction. It was total science fiction. But you liked it. I liked it. And so you went through college, you did the college thing. And did you start to think at that point a little bit about a career? Yeah. So, I mean, I went through a bunch of transitions. So I think it was sophomore year is when in the summertime, we were going to get set up to take the MCATs. Um, and so that summer, I was studying for the MCATs with my best friend. And we were biking up to Kaplan every day. And two days, or the day before, really close to the MCATs, we're biking to Kaplan. And I'm kind of looking at my best friend and I'm thinking about the tests that I'm about to take. And I turned to her and I said, Kathy, I don't know what I'm doing here. She's like, what are you talking about? We're biking to study for the MCATs. We're taking it in a couple days. And I said, I've been thinking about it. I hate hospitals. I, I really don't like sick people. I don't like it when people complain to me. It just seems like such a mismatch of career and person. And she was, is still like this incredibly empathetic, wonderful human being who, when you have something to complain about, you go to Kathy. She cares so deeply about people. And so I'm, I'm kind of looking at her, I'm like, you're supposed to be a doctor, not me. And uh, I realized for, for a while, I was I loved the idea of being a doctor. I loved the how noble it is as a cause. I loved the service that you can provide to someone. But it was more I loved the idea of it versus what it would be for me in practice. And so that actually threw me into a huge identity crisis because – yeah, I was sitting there. I had taken organic chemistry the previous summer. I'd taken all these extra classes that weren't even required for electrical engineering so that I could be a doctor. And all of a sudden, I'm saying to myself, well, all these things that I was doing is in service of a pursuit that I don't think I'm built to do. And so then what is it that I'm supposed to do? And that next school year, as I'm going through this, I had been working for work study as part of my financial aid package for the School of Engineering in the dean's office. And at one point, he asked me to give a tour to an executive who was visiting. And I proceeded to give this guy a tour of the entire engineering department. And it turned out he was from Palo Alto. And so we had this great conversation of growing up in Palo Alto, what it's like. 
And at the end of which he said, well, how, how would you like to come visit when you're home for spring break? And throughout the time, I had never asked this guy what he did for a living. So I said, well, where do you work? And he said, I'm the CEO of Hewlett Packard. And so for spring break junior year, I tracked Lou Platt from Hewlett Packard and I, I sort of basically shadowed him for a week and a, a number of other executives and had this incredible opportunity to see uh, technology and business at work. And at the end of which, he then gave me two photos. One was a picture where I was sitting on a couch talking to Lou Platt, who's sit- sitting in this chair. And then the very next picture, Bill Gates was sitting in that exact same spot I had been sitting talking to Lou Platt. And it was sort of this nudge, this image that was implanted in my head of who who I might aspire to that had never been in my head before. And I couldn't get that image out. All right. There's a lot to unpack. So let's back up. I want to hear a little bit more about your decision to not be a doctor. Because I think <laughs> I think there are many examples, we all know them, where people would start down a path and it's very difficult to come off of that path. Whether it's yeah. people we know who got engaged, who knew they shouldn't have gotten married to that person, or whether it was people who went down a career path. So wh- you're still a young woman and you'd invested a lot of your own time and mental energy mm-hmm. in doing this. Was it difficult to step away or was it really... Uh, partly because you had the comfort of this other thing that fell in your lap? Well, I didn't have that comfort for for a number of months, but I think I, I've actually been pretty good at closing doors. So I think there are some people who are very afraid of closing opportunities or saying no to things. I think that's probably one of my skill sets is that I'm pretty unapologetic or unafraid to close doors. I think in closing doors, you create new opportunities. Uh, and so I'm not like a door counter of like, how many doors do I have open? It's the degree to which you're interested in the space that you can encounter. Um, and so for me, closing that door on something I'd invested a lot of time and energy into. I love the path of that. I love the fact that I had taken organic chemistry. I love the fact that I had discovered that there were certain things I wasn't as good at. Uh, I love the fact that I had also sat down to think about the fact that the hospital wasn't an environment that I really loved. Every time I had to go to the doctor, it was like a moment of dread for me. And I also appreciated the fact that there were people who had these incredible gifts, like my friend Kathy, who can sit down and listen to someone who is going through an incredible amount of pain and empathize with that and realizing that that was her superpower and not mine. And to me, that was a real gift that I was realizing that before I was in med school, that I was realizing that before I had gone into residency and fellowship and taken all these exams or or filled out an application form. Uh, and so, if anything, I felt like it was, while I was troubled with the fact that I didn't know what I wanted to do, I felt like it was empowering to know that there was something I didn't want to do. In my opinion, closing doors is one of the hardest things for us to do. I'm not sure if it's an evolutionary thing or just a bug, but whether it's picking a college, a career, buying a house, or finding a spouse, it seems we all want to leave as many doors open as possible. Anne Murico's approach to this issue is so refreshing, because rather than seeing a closed door as a lost opportunity, she sees it as one gained. And this is true. Every open door comes with opportunity cost. And when the cost isn't worth it, the time has come for the door to close. That's amazing and um, I think unusual. I mean, I think we many of us get going and the momentum and the inertia is really hard to overcome. So I'm impressed by that. So then this Lou Platt story, which is awesome, happens. And I can't remember, did you say that he invited you to come work there as a... It was just a summer uh, or it was a spring externship. So I was okay. 
going to go home for my spring break. And he just invited me to come shadow him during that period. And then did you end up going to work there later or was that it? I didn't. I just, uh, I ended up working at McKinsey afterwards. And my parents even at that point were like, why, why don't you go work at Hewlett Packard? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I have this other opportunity that I really want to pursue. But it was to me, it was an incredible window into a world First of all, Lou Platt was of this generation of incredible CEOs. I think a lot of people even look back on him as the last generation of true Hewlett-Packard type CEOs. He drove around in this Ford Taurus. It drove himself. And he spent a lot of time actually going to luncheons that were honoring employees who had been working there for 30 years or more. It was just an incredible thing to watch. And then he would switch from that to to having a huge announcement with Microsoft and Bill Gates. So it was just incredible to just witness the humility of this person who was an incredible executive. He also talked a lot about wanting to have an office that wasn't just sort of this closed off corner office. He was he he tried to make it a very open office. And I love the fact that he's explaining these things to a junior in college, trying to get me to understand what he was trying to do. He he taught me a lot in the short amount of time I had exposure to him. But more than anything, I felt like he taught me a lot about what mentorship looks like. And you don't get the impression that this was a one-off thing, that you were the only one that had had this experience. He'd done it before. It was just so natural to him that... Yeah, I mean, I I just think it's I I don't think he even knew what he, what gift he gave me in that moment. Did you ever see him again? I didn't. Is he still alive? No. Oh, that's sad. All right. So then you went to McKinsey, and that was basically just a job, or were you actually thinking like I really want to be a consultant? You know, back then it was I I came back from the Hewlett Packard experience, and, and I walked back into Yale, and I say. I think this business thing is kind of interesting. What do I do? Back then, a lot of people would just say you do investment banking or you do consulting. So actually, the summer, junior year summer, I went into investment banking and work at Goldman Sachs. And it wasn't, it wasn't a fit for me. Just the environment, the, the nature of the work wasn't, wasn't a fit for me. And then I decided that then I would try this consulting thing. And I ended up really loving the training that I got from consulting. So I felt like I I learned how to storytell. I learned how to communicate very, very complex topics in simple ways and convincing arguments. I learned how to do that in PowerPoint slides. And I had the opportunity to work in a lot of different environments. So I worked in paper manufacturing, in banking. Uh, I worked internationally in Spain and Japan. And so I got exposure to a ton of different types of businesses and ideas and was mentored by some really incredible partners. And uh, I, I felt like I got an MBA in just a few short years. And as far as I can tell, very few people have a career at McKinsey or similar. So you must at some point have started to think about what was going to come next. Yeah. How, what did that process look like for you? So I had, I had a friend who in college had said, when I was going through this career crisis, he had said, hey, you know, you're really good at technology. You're interested in business. Have you ever thought of venture capital? And, and for my birthday, he had gone to the business school and he had copied, I think it must have been the NVCA directory. It's the National Venture Capital Association directory. And he kind of gave it to me. He's like, you should, you should have this. And so that kind of stuck with me. Of, I knew about venture capital having grown up in Silicon Valley, but I hadn't really thought of that as a career. But I had thought about startups for, for some time at that moment. And so... I didn't have a good idea. I didn't have something that I wanted to pursue. Plus, this was 2001 when I'm leaving McKinsey. And so the whole economy has basically dissipated. Most companies are laying off 90% of their workforce. And so I had this 
opportunity where I ran into a, a venture capitalist by the name of Ted Dintersmith. And uh, he was looking for someone to work with him. And we had this interview where he never asked me about technology. We talked about the books that I was reading. And I, at the time, I was reading a ton of fiction. And and then he was asking me about the music that I was listening to. And as a pianist, I was listening to a lot of classical piano. And we spent, it must have been two hours talking about these things. And he, I guess the only technical thing he asked me to describe was my senior project, which was uh, autonomous robots playing soccer. And so he was really curious about the things that I had built. And at the end of that, he said, well, this has been really fun. I'd really like to work with you. And that interview was such an interesting interview to me that I basically didn't hesitate to say yes, that I wanted to move from Palo Alto, where I thought I was going to stay for the rest of my life. I'd finally moved back home and I decided to leave to go to Boston so that I could, I could experience what business would be like under, under this person. And then my second day of work at Charles River Ventures was 9-11. And so, so everything kind of really did fall apart. But I think the benefit that I got out of it was, you know, a lot of people, these days, they've only seen the upswing in the cycle. And I can say for certain that I've seen real down cycles and what that looks like actually in venture capital. How long did you end up staying there? I was there for two years and I was always clear I wanted to go back to grad school. But even in that period, I was struggling to figure out what kind of grad school I wanted to go to. So going into Charles River Ventures, I was applying to law school. And the backstory to that was I'd been a high school speech and debater, and I was pretty good at debating. And so I had come to this conclusion of if I'm really good at technology ideas and I'm really good at debating, then I should really be a patent attorney. What? Um, yeah, it was <laughs> it was very flawed logic. But fortunately... My boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, he was going to law school. So as I'm applying to law school, I could see what he was studying and I could see what was required to be a very successful attorney. And again, it was sort of this realization, that's not who I am. That's not what I want to do with my time. And so I had gone through you know, taking the LSATs, applying to law school, getting into law school, and I remember looking at my the partner I was w- working for, and I said, "I don't think I don't think this is what I should be doing." And he said, "Stay another year, apply to another different kind of grad school. What do you want to do?" And I did a complete one eighty, and I said, "I think I want to go to a PhD program." And uh, I had been so adamant that I was not going to do a technical PhD. I told my dad I wasn't going to do this. My dad really wanted me to. And it was to the point that if you're going to go and get an academic PhD, you really should ask for your recommendations from your professors before you graduate. And I hadn't done any of that. And so I'm five years out from school and I have to go back to my professors and pray that they remember who I am, that they'll write me a decent recommendation. And and so... So I went through that whole process and discovered that there were a couple programs that I really wanted to to work in and uh, got into this one at Stanford and ended up there. And what were you doing? I was studying math modeling of cybersecurity. Math modeling of cybersecurity. So it was theoretical. Yeah, it's sort of basically understanding the underlying components of risk with cybersecurity. And this was like 2004, 2003. Wow. So early on in the cycle of also understanding that cybersecurity is not just a technology problem, but rather a problem in risk management. And it was interesting because I, even at Stanford, I remember I was trying to explain this to an academic and, and uh, this research scientist actually said to me at one point, you know, the problem isn't risk. It's a, it's a technology problem that you're trying to solve. And if you throw more technology at the problem, you'll be able to solve it. And 
you could kind of see the writing on the wall that this this wasn't true. Uh, but there were no conferences where they studied risk modeling of cybersecurity. Uh, the funding wasn't necessarily there for that kind of research. And so it was wonderful because I wasn't studying this small niche because everyone else had studied this space really, really well. I got, got a chance to sort of open up the space and figure out what I wanted to do. And then the other piece was I knew that cybersecurity was going to always be around. And my ultimate goal was to start a company. And I felt that if I did research in this space, it didn't matter what my timing was when I would emerge, that problem would still exist and I would be able to form a company around it. But I mean, back in 2003, that was like back in the sort of, you had one password and you shared it with everyone, right? They're really like, I don't even remember there being a whole lot of discussion of cybersecurity. That was something that you identified at that stage that you thought this is going to be big? Yeah. So I had in, in my work at Charles River Ventures, there was a point where I was trying to convince an executive at a bank to start a company that we were internally calling ERP for IT. And it was driven from this knowledge that there were some banks that were taking a look at hundreds of millions of dollars of spend in IT and they were managing it off as spreadsheets. And they were trying to figure out what risk they faced, what cybersecurity risk, what just general IT risk they faced. But they were managing it off of spreadsheets. So I had seen how some of the very best in this field, spending hundreds of millions of dollars in IT, were doing it. So I knew that there was a problem there. Sorry, can I interrupt for a sec? Just because you're talking to a Luddite. So the idea is that spreadsheets are just a terrible way to manage these kinds of data. Well, it's, it's just, just like, it's not dynamic right. at all, right? right? And you're getting a lot of information from the world. And it was, so So I agree with you, it was 2003 was sort of a, a very early more moment in, in cybersecurity from that, that kind of perspective. And the way I would articulate it is there was a moment in that era where cybersecurity risk really was about vandalism. So there would be some hackers that like to come along and mess up your site. And it was, it was for kicks and giggles, right? And, and so you had a set of tools to try to control that situation. But the space rapidly evolved during the time of my PhD. And all of a sudden, there was real dollars and cents involved that uh, criminal syndicates could actually make money off of cybersecurity attacks. And then on the heels of that, nation states came in pretty quickly. And so by the time I'm graduating, you're now fighting nation state warfare with literally the same tools you had to fight vandalism. And so the the risk mitigation and the risk accumulation was totally different at that moment and so i think it was it still is a really interesting problem so but back then it must have been really hard to communicate risk i mean i, I think about how we communicate risk all the time because it's what i do right yeah. i mean i'm trying to tell somebody well you know if your cholesterol is x then you have an x chance of having this event that may or may not happen if it does it's going to happen 25 years from now right that's really hard i think for us humans to compute did yeah. you find that was hard for people to understand because again there hadn't been an example there had just been this massive physical terrorist attack yeah but there hadn't been like a cyber attack that i knew of at least right no. and i i think some of the the difficulty in describing that is you know especially in, in statistics the way that most people were describing these these events, you would have you would have the probability of attack, and then you would have the dollar value of the attack, which isn't really a great way of modeling risk, right? Because something that is highly likely and low value might be relatively the same as very low likely and high value. And in your mind, that actually, depending on what your risk profile is, those two are not actually valued the same. And so communicating that actually was tricky. So how did you do that? Pretend that I'm some like dumbass CEO of some whatever Bank well, of America. We did we did a lot of um, interesting models. So like one of the ones that we ran, we were trying to communicate the fact that risk also propagates. So 
because everyone's interconnected, so take even the the password example, everyone's using the same password, then if you are the New York Times, protecting passwords may not be the most important thing to do. But if I, as the consumer, am using the same password on the New York Times as I do in Citibank, now Citibank is incurring this huge risk based on the fact that the New York Times doesn't protect their password files or encrypt them. And so we were trying to describe how that gets passed on in these network situations and what what does that mean in terms for the cost incurred or the implicit over-provisioning uh, that the Citibank would have to do because of the incurred risk from a New York Times. So that's it, the kind of modeling that we would do. Was it fun? It was really fun. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed being able to go deep on a particular topic. And the thing that I enjoyed most about the research that I got to do was that it was very sort of multidimensional. I, I was taking classes in economics, and I was also taking classes in cybersecurity, and I was taking classes in applied math. So it just allowed me to float relatively freely between a lot of different really interesting concepts. And so what year did you finish? Uh, so I I actually graduated in 2010. I defended, I think, in 2009, but I had started Floodgate in 2008. And you start, you co-founded Floodgate. Mm-hmm. And how did you find Mike? Mike is Mike Maples, who is Anne's partner and was her co-founder at Floodgate. He also happens to have a very interesting new podcast called Starting Greatness. I highly recommend it. Or how did he find you? Yeah, so Mike was a mentor in one of the classes that I was a TA for. And so because I had this this work experience in startups, I had the opportunity to be a TA in some really interesting startup classes, entrepreneurship classes in the engineering school. And in one of the classes, these teams would basically race towards creating a business plan and a real company by the end of the quarter. And we had, as a result mentors who would come in and mentor these teams. And they were all from industry. And Mike was one of these mentors. And there was a really, really high potential team with a PhD from electrical engineering who was pursuing, I think it was some sort of genetic technology. The team, though, was fighting all the time. And so as the TA, I'm trying to push them, but they're also coming to my office and they're, they're it's group projects and they would literally cry in my office. And so I, at that point, had a lot of really great mentors who were pretty high-powered people, former CEOs of VeriSign and, and um, angel investors. And so they were supposed to be much more hands-on with these teams, especially if they're having a meltdown. So I wrote kind of a nasty gram to Mike saying, hey, your mentor on this team, I really need you to step up. You haven't really been engaged with them. And he writes me back a snarky email that just says they're going to get an A+. Plus. I'm like, not at current course and speed. <laughs> and so that was the start of our conversation. They ended up, they did get an A+. Plus. I like to take credit for that because I felt like I did the intervention. But that was the start of our our sets of conversations. And, and one day... I think it must be about nine months later, I'm I'm thinking about starting this company in cybersecurity and risk modeling. And I went and talked to a bunch of mentors, one of whom was uh, Steve Blank. And Steve Blank was an instructor in one of my classes. And he said, you know, Anne, you should go find one of these angels uh, who's who's pretty connected. And Mike Maples is a pretty well-connected angel just to see what's what's happening in the landscape. You've been you know, stuck in the ivory towers for too long. You don't really know what's going on in the real world. Go check out what's happening in the real world. And so I approached Mike and I asked him if I could see his deal flow. And he said, every Wednesday, come by. We'll take a look at a bunch of entrepreneurs at the same time. And so I'd spend all day Wednesday with him. And it was just really, really interesting because in 2007, is just right when that shift is happening towards entrepreneurs being able to do so much more with so much less capital. 
And that shift was just starting to happen. You could start to see it. I could see it amongst the students in my classes at Stanford. And, and so when, when Mike was talking about 500,000 is the new 5 million because people used to raise $5 million and sell off 50% of their company, I could see that there was something there. And in March of 2018, he ended up raising a fund and he gave me a call one day. 2008. 2008, sorry. He said, uh, hey, I think I've raised this fund and I know this isn't the venture-backed startup that you're looking to do, but now it's a backed venture startup. And if you want to be a co-founder in this thing, you can join me. How long did it take you to say yes? I literally thought he was crazy. So it actually took me a couple months. You thought he was crazy because to be hiring you or he, you thought he, he just was, it was a dumb idea. Uh, no, I thought it was a really good idea. I thought, I thought I, I couldn't really fathom why me in that case, because, you know, I haven't finished a PhD yet. I'm a PhD, literally candidate. I worked for a couple years in venture capital and I have some access to Stanford students, but it's not like I have this robust career in investing. I didn't go to business school. So, so I was just like, I, I, I don't, I don't know why out of the whole world of potential partners, he's choosing me as his co-founder. And then I also knew enough about partnership dynamics that I wanted to make sure that he wasn't crazy and that he was someone that I could really work with for the rest of my life. And so it took me a couple months, but I felt like I told him I needed four months. And within, I would say, six to eight weeks, I knew not only was he on to something really special, but he was a special individual that I wanted to work with. And so you don't think he made a mistake? No, I don't think so. What do you think he, <laughs> what do you think he saw? I mean, some, to me, sitting here now, hearing your story and knowing you, it's obvious, right? I mean, you're talented up and down. You know, you can list all the things that I know of that predict success and whatever it is that people do. You check a lot of the boxes. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about why you thought that you didn't see it in yourself or did you really see it? Um, I don't think I thought I couldn't do the job. I think I was questioning why I would be selected for the job. Why would, what was the, who was it? Who said it about you? Don't want to be a member of a club where that wants you to be a member of a club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally what it was. Well, so you did that and you, I mean, regardless of Everything else, you know, you always love to have the conversation about luck versus talent versus all the other things. But clearly you were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And it was a perfect time to be doing what you were doing. And it's gone incredibly well. So I, I, we could probably go through and like talk about every single one of the investments that you've made. But I wanted to ask you a couple of specific questions just in general. So one is sort of, um, I don't want to put you on the spot and I don't want you to, to offend any of your portfolio companies, but what, what's been your favorite investment? Not necessarily the one that's been the most lucrative, but what was the one where you feel like you um, you contributed a lot or you were excited? It was just something about it that made it feel good. You don't have to pick one. You could pick two. Well, so I, I think, you know, your first investment is probably always going to be one that's incredibly memorable. And so, and I think it's, it's memorable for a number of different reasons. The first investment I made was in a company called TaskRabbit. And I've heard of them. And the person who introduced me was Tim Ferriss. We had just had dinner for some reason. I think Mike was friends with Tim Ferriss. And so I went to dinner and then Tim emails me and says, I just met this woman. You got to meet her. And so I meet her at this diner at Stanford Shopping Center. And immediately we have like, it's almost like a chemical reaction. I, I remember I was so drawn to Leah Busky and I just thought she was technical. She had a great story. She knew how to talk about this idea that she had. This is way before sharing economy had become a thing. It's the first time I'm hearing about this. And she's describing this whole new concept of neighbors who are not neighbors. So this idea that you used to live in a world where neighbors would do favors for one another, 
And now you don't have that. And is there a way of creating a digital platform that enables that? And I remember thinking to myself, this is, this is such a great fundamental concept. And she had a couple of use cases that I thought was so compelling. So one was there was this woman, her son was going to get chemotherapy. Uh, that next week, and it was a sort of very sudden event, and she couldn't get out there in time. And so she was putting out this request through TaskRabbit that someone might be able to bring him some food later on. And the person who picked it up was a mother on the other side. And just that story in and of itself, I thought was, it, it was just like everything that that TaskRabbit was supposed to represent. And so I remember being super paranoid that someone else was going to also discover this and want to do the investment before I did. So I made all these different people talk to her about how great I was. So I had Steve Blank meet with her and then tell her that I was really great. And he was just like becoming this blogging phenom. I had Eric Reese then reach out to her and meet with her and say how awesome I was. And so I had all these people sort of in her path that would just casually mention how great I was. And so by the time I gave her this term sheet and she was thinking about taking investments, I was just sort of there to do it. And then the other thing that was really special about that round was uh, there were really two other major firms at the time that I, I really enjoyed working with. One was uh, First Round Capital, and Rob Hayes from First Round Capital was interested in making the investment, so he ended up doing it. And then um, we also got Steve Anderson from Baseline, who's the original investor behind Instagram. And so we had this this great group of original investors who then got involved with with Leah. She then moves out from Boston to San Francisco to get started with this business. And, and she's sort of very early on into the sharing economy. And then if you fast forward, one of the other reasons I love this is that she then exits the business to Ikea and now she is a venture capitalist herself. And so many people are always asking, how, how do we change these numbers in venture capital? How do we create more diversity and inclusion? And I like to point to that story. It takes a long time, but that's how it happens. You invest in someone, you believe in them. They, they have an incredible experience being an entrepreneur. Then they have the scar tissue and they have the experience that they can then impart into other entrepreneurs. That's, that's really relevant. And so. so. When you met Leah, she had an idea or did she have a pro- did she have anything? She, she had a product. So she did. had something launched in Boston. And how did she get that? Did she have a background where she did like was able to find somebody to help her, a developer to help her? Or well, she, she was a coder ah. as well. And so she she had been a coder at IBM. And but she was also incredibly resourceful. So she got Scott Griffith, who was at Zipcar at the time, to be supportive of her as an entrepreneur. And he just basically gave her free office space and supported her in her initial endeavors to get this off the ground. So when you started doing this for real, like not the first version at Charles River, but when you Mm -hmm. were doing this for real, it was your money or close to your money. Yeah. Yeah. Floodgate's money. Um, Did you have a, did you sit down and think, I have a, I'm going to have a philosophy. Like, this is how I'm going to approach it. I'm going to think about this or that sector, or I'm going to value people or I'm going to value market or idea, or was it just sort of like, I'm going to use my best judgment? So when I got started, I had also been teaching a lot of entrepreneurship classes at Stanford in the School of Engineering. So I had been TA for multiple classes where you would see 10 to 20 ideas pop up. And so I had been giving feedback to a lot of college-age or master's students who are starting businesses. And so I had already a philosophy of what I felt would work and what wouldn't work. I think the the thing that I had to hone was what's a space that I'm interested in. And so early on, I became really interested in marketplaces 
And I was also very interested in e-commerce. And so those were two areas that I spent a lot of time uh, in the early days. But you must have seen a lot of deals. And so were, were there certain things that stuck out, uh, you know, at the time that you thought this, this is going to predict success? And I'm also curious if, if you ended up getting it or if you made some mistakes. Oh, yeah, we, we made a ton of mistakes, especially, you know, that, that cohort 2008 to 2010 has really matured now, and that's the IPO class. So we have a lot of emails going back and forth in our partnership now of all the reasons we passed on on deals that are now going out for IPO, which is particularly painful. But we were looking for fairly consistent things to what we look for today. We have a whole framework that we have, which we call the value stack. And it's it's if you imagine a lot of people talk about for startups, you need to have a product that fits a market and they call that product market fit. And, and I think that's table stakes, but a real company. So we invest in companies that will be around 20, 30 years from now that are worth 20, 50, hundred billion dollars. And if you're looking for that, that level of scale, then you're looking for a legendary business. And a legendary business doesn't just have a product that fits a market. You're looking for a set of proprietary secrets that gives you defensibility. You're looking for a founding team that is thinking about much more than just building a product. You're looking for how will they eventually make money and have cash flow. You're looking at what are the values of the organization and how do they make decisions so that they will have that proprietary advantage be maintained for a long time. You're looking for a values, a mission, vision, so that even in the early days when you don't have anything, employees are attracted to that business. And then the last to me is category. Like how do you create your own category so you aren't playing by someone else's rules, but you're getting to create your own rules? Those are the things that we look for even back in the early days, I think we were doing it on a more instinctive level. Uh, but today we're trying to do that more on a, a systematic basis. And is it actually like code? I mean, do you put together like a score sheet and rank people on all those different dimensions? Yeah. So we don't have an exact score sheet. And in fact, in the very early days, we weight different parts of it much, much more highly. So we, we care most about team. We are looking at proprietary secrets. We want to understand why this business today. And we want to have a sense of, are these founders? And when we say we're waiting a lot around team, we're assessing whether or not they have the capacity to build a full stack business. So we're looking to see how do they think in their idea maze around the business model? How do they think about the category that they're building how do they think about what is truly proprietary and has a durable proprietary advantage versus something that's really short-lived? So we're thinking about all those things. And is it pretty obvious? Like in retrospect, can you look back and say, no? No, it's not It's not obvious at all. I think that's the hardest piece. I mean, We have several stories. I think in 2008, I, I was pursuing GitHub with Mike. And this was before any any venture investor, I think, got to them. By two years, you know, they, they were very, very afraid of working with venture capitalists. And I think I used my Stanford email address and Mike was using his Gmail address and we were saying, Oh, well, we're not venture investors. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a grad student at Stanford. And Mike's like, I'm, a, I think he said, I'm a washed up entrepreneur for in enterprise software. <laughs> so, so, and we would take them out for dinner trying to convince them to take our money. But, you know, at that early stage, Mike will often say it's early, way too early, or questionably legal too early. It, it literally looks weird. So Airbnb was not even called Airbnb, it was called Airbed and Breakfast. And because they didn't have enough revenues selling airbeds in people's homes, they were selling boxes of cereal. And, and I remember, I, th I think their revenues in cereal boxes was higher than their airbed sales. So 
That's what you're assessing. When I looked at Pinterest initially, I think there were 11,000 users and the, the use cases ranged from, you know, people, uh, logging their electronic equipment, like microphones and stereo equipment to women who are clearly doing things in sewing circles. So it was not clear at all what these ideas were going to become in the future. And so that's what we're assessing. And those are the founders there in the their rawest form in that moment. And so assessing it is, I think, really tricky. And if you're assessing for risk and all of the things that could go wrong, then you'll pass on the the vast majority of these businesses. And so the secret is trying to figure out what does this become if everything goes right. So you're playing to win, not not to lose. That's exactly right. Okay. This is a really important set of concepts, and it is not relevant to just startups or entrepreneurs or businesses, but can be applied to how we evaluate and invest in talent in any area, including biology and medicine. But as a co-founder at a new startup, I can't help but pay close attention to what Anne says here. First off, they are looking for transformational ideas, companies that can be worth 50 to $100 billion. They are not interested in iterating. They want legendary companies. This is not just about a great idea, but clearly also about a team. And one thing Anne looks for is how teams make decisions. What is the best-known method for founding teams? And lastly, and maybe most importantly, especially given that Anne worked in risk, Anne asks the question about what would the company be if everything goes right? She thinks about winning and not losing. My next and first tattoo might be, what does this become if everything goes right? So I want to back up to you in the story you were telling about when you first got together with Mike, you, you said something about this team you were working with at Stanford and that they were fighting and that you mediated that. Did they end up making a company that ended up becoming successful or not? They did not. They did not actually build a company, but they did get an A plus in the class. That, but they're probably pretty happy about that. Right now. Um, how much does that founder strive scare you? Is that something, I mean, if you were thinking about investing in them as an example, would that be something that would scare you away? Or do you think that that can be healthy? I think actually good conflict is very healthy. I don't think anyone should ever really end up in tears. And so I I love the process of disagreeing and exploring ideas through debate. And in fact, if there's one like major criticism I've gotten over the years is that life is not a debate. And so I probably overextend myself on on that dimension. I love to explore ideas by just disagreeing. And so I think that's a really important piece of a healthy dynamic within any team is the the lack of ownership of ideas to be able to be open to truth. And so one of the core values that we talk about at Floodgate is we believe in truth over tribalism. And to me, that means truth does not exist because someone has a particular title. Truth does not exist in a particular grouping of people. Truth exists somewhere, and our job is to find it. And so the team dynamic that maximizes for that, I think, is is the best. So you've had this sort of incredible list of things you've done in your life, and it all combines to make you and it's impossible to pull any one of those out. But if you were thinking about advising a young person in terms of, that's not even say they wanted to be a venture capitalist, but just that they wanted to do something of all the skills that you've acquired, whether it's uh, debate or math or engineering or, you know, uh, company building or identifying future leaders, what what's the thing you think is probably the most important? And maybe the more specific question is, is there a class that if you were a college student you were recommending to somebody to take that might not be sort of a traditional, like, you know, math, science, um, yeah, history. Well, I mean, I think those two would be totally different advice. So for college students, I think, man, if you have the opportunity to take literature courses or, you know, history courses, take those because they last a lifetime. I go back to my digital circuits textbook and it's, 
totally outdated. It's not relevant anymore. And so I, I think about that a lot and in the classes that can last forever, read Paradise Lost. That's hard to read when you're out of college. Read a lot of Shakespeare. But then you get back to like the skill sets that, that I learned. I think for me, it was actually, um, the most important moment for me was actually realizing that in facing tremendous fears that I had, I could overcome particular weaknesses that I had. And so I think for me, as a kid, I was extraordinarily shy. And I think I, I actually still am very shy. I've just managed to overcome it. And I didn't love public speaking. I, I hated to insert myself into conversations to the extent that even when I was tardy at school, you know, you'd have to go to the office and you'd have to report to the, the lady that you're late and you have to write your name down. My brother would have to come with me to that office and be like, this is Ann Mira. She is late for school. So am I. And, and I remember just realizing at some point that this was all ridiculous, that, that I needed to be able to face that fear. And in facing that fear, I, I went into a debate team, which my mom thought was insane given the talents that I had at the time. She was like, this is, you, you couldn't possibly be worse at anything than speech and debate. But I, I could show that over time, I really pr- progressed in not only being unafraid at, at the end of my high school career in expressing myself to publicly speaking, that I could actually have confidence that I was pretty good at it. And if I didn't have that set of experiences as a young person, I think it would really have made me afraid to do a lot of other things. I think it also would have held me back because I think that process of being able to get up in front of people and speak and articulate what you believe in is such a fundamental skill set now in this world that I think without it, I wouldn't be where I am. But so do you think you knew that? I don't think I had the foresight to say this is all that's going to happen, but I knew it was important. And you knew you weren't that great at it. Yeah. I mean, like, although you were, I was, um, this is like the, the weirdest thing that I ever did was in fifth grade, I was, my mom, you know, shipped me off to a local community college. Mira school turned into go to the community college and take these summer classes. And you would take all these classes with other kids. Usually there was an, like a junior high school version. So you take math class or maybe some science and writing. And the required math class for the Mira kids I took. And my mom said, you have to take one other class. And I ended up signing up for a negotiations class. And it was in the adult school. And my mom was like, what are you doing? You're taking a negotiations class. And I remember it was because they they were reading this book called Getting to Yes. And I really wanted to know <laughs> how you get to yes. And, and so... It was just sort of, I knew it was an important thing. I had taken this class in fifth grade. I knew it was important. I knew I wasn't good at it. I knew that even in this class, I was supremely shy. And so it was something that I had to get over, but I didn't know how critical it was going to be in life. That's amazing. I can only imagine what those people, the adults in that class must have thought about having this fifth grader sitting in here. In the Probably they thought, they thought I had a parent who was really very aggro, but... No, it's awesome. <laughs> Listen, I, this has been so much fun. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk with me. I hope we can do it again. Yeah. Thank awesome. you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Anne Murico is one of the leading early stage venture capitalists in the world and arguably one of the most successful. She got where she got by grinding hard, but also she is clearly a product of her environment. Her dad is a rocket scientist, and her mother conducted Mura School, a specialized math homeschooling program to supplement what she was learning in regular school for her and her brother. Anne had remarkable insights into her strengths and weaknesses, and more importantly, what she liked to do. 
This is so important. So many people do what they feel that they should do and not what they want to do. Anne was able to recognize several times that she was not doing what she was supposed to be doing. There's no doubt that Anne had tremendous talent and luck and could have done almost anything, but she was extremely patient in finding her calling. Heck, she made Mike Maples wait over a month for an answer after he offered her a position as a co-founder at Floodgate while she was still a graduate student. In the end, all her experiences, her journey, has led her to build a framework for identifying, investing, and then nurturing the most exciting and potentially transformational businesses and their leaders of the era. This is Best Known Method.